0: How far did you get in it? I think 52%. Yeah. It's long.
1: Yeah, it's hella long.
0: quite long.
1: Part of that's due to his, his structure, but I, I, get, I began to like his structure. And you um, can start talking about the book, I guess, if you want. But,
0: um, yeah. Uh, um, 55%. Yeah, I mean, I... I appreciate it because like the same thing with the built to lose where I think sometimes historical narratives tend to, you know, be told by the winners and that's not what history really is. Right. I mean, I know this is a history of like a totally bizarre subset of basketball, but having the multiple voices, I think adds legitimacy to the, stories because they're not all you know they're different in some cases and so and you never really know what the truth is you know because uh, there's always somebody telling you the story so anyways yeah i agree i liked the multiple narrators and the fact that he kind of like at the end the very end he starts like doing a like more of like a journal of each year like the eighth year and here's what happened and like does a rundown on all of the notable events. And then he'll add in like some stats or what. Yeah, how did you. you, how
1: did you like those?
0: Um, I like those too. Um,
1: I didn't like them. I actively didn't like them. Oh so really? Just too many little snippets that like don't relate to each other. And there's no, like it was even worse. It was even not worse, but it was, it was even more, like no narr there, there was a narrative in each chapter you know it was a topic there was a team or it was two a player like that uh the guy I just read about Johnny Newman or it was two players like the, the enforcer guys the guys that gotten so many fights yeah there was a narrative to each chapter but those notes and stuff was just like little rip- random snippets of details like yeah, I just didn't read the I, last few that I went through. Well, I, I mean, some of it,
0: like I, I feel like it would be more. It's hard because, like, it's so old at this point, and the book came out in the eighties, right? So he's yeah. like, t- the, the book is like referencing the present as if it's you know Michael Jordan, <laughs> like, so it's kind of. Like And and I mean, clearly, like, obviously, I've heard of Connie Hawkins, but I've never seen him play or anything like that. And True. I know who Julius Erving is, and I know who George Gervin is, but it's pretty limited, like, the players that I knew. So I think for me, I was, like, a little less connected to it yeah. than some of the other stuff we've read, I guess. Um, but I, I did find a lot of stuff in it that I think – you know, is obviously like massively influenced the NBA, obviously the play style, like all the promotion stuff that they did, giving away t-shirts, the slam dunk, the all-star games, um, the three point shot. I mean, it's, um, I'm trying to think. And then like, even the, the stat keeping to a certain extent, um, You know, they really elevated the way that stats were kept, which I think is pretty cool. Um, Yeah,
1: I I randomly was clicking around in my Kindle and I went to a went to a a highlight somehow that I or near a highlight and I scrolled up and saw the highlight. And it's a pretty good highlight to talk about uh, the ABA, at least, and beyond just what they talk about in the book. It's clear in the book as you go along that this is the case. They say we got a lot of Dick Dick Tinkum. We get a lot of credit. This is on page 40, I guess, if the, number, if the page numbers match up to the printed copy. But uh, we get a lot of credit from some people for being bright and innovative. And I guess we were. But if there's one message i like to get across about the ABA is that we had no plan. <laughs> <laughs> sure, we wanted to merge with the NBA. That was a goal. But what plan? We had none. We went by the seat of our pants and made up it up as we went along. If rule didn't fix with something we wanted to do, we just changed it or ignored it. If someone had an idea no matter how lame brain usually someone tried it
0: <laughs> i mean i think there's some merit to that in a lot of ways like i think you know like all oh, the angst about the all-star game now like wouldn't it be kind of cool if somebody just came up with a bunch of random crap and just tried it like
1: yeah you know i i
0: i mean it's it's funny cuz like they were totally flying by the seat of their pants yeah. and managed to squeeze nine years out of a league that they literally started just to try and join the NBA, just right. to try and get absorbed by the NBA, you know. And Kevin, but, feel
1: free to come up. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Meg, but um, Kevin, feel free to come up and speak if you want to. If you Oh, read, yeah, read it should book, be so. open. Yeah, it's it open to be. come up,
0: yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's just – I mean, and some of it is so – like I, I think overall. I mean, maybe I'll start going through the chronological notes that I have too, because I don't want to like say everything I want to say before. Sure, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, talking about it in order. Um, in but i always so. Go ahead. Yeah. I think you know. I guess like I, I walked away with the idea that overall it benefited like the players and the unions and all that kind of stuff because it put them in a better position. To negotiate, you know. Um, sure, sure. And I the stuff that I don't know if you got to the part where they talk about the the NCAA um, agreement that the NBA had, and like how they just a- kind of ignored it and found a way wow. to go around it. And a lot of times, and I, like the NCAA is total bullshit, and it has been for s- this many years, right? Right, um, and the NBA was just feeding into like them being able to make money off these guys, you know, and that was the agreement essentially. And the A- right. the ABA was like, well, these guys need to make money. These guys are from like shit poor neighborhoods; they Our got nothing races, in they the fridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like,
1: they, they kind of made it up to try to get to try to get over the ones that they tried to get. I forget the first person they tried to get, but it yeah. was good, and they. They worked it out to do that with uh, with him. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just so crazy, some of this stuff. If, I, there's some good stuff, though, that I'll look up while you're doing your run through. Okay. Uh, I got some good things I thought were touching, too. There were some touching moments in the book as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, like, some of it was really poignant, I thought. poignant. Yeah. I don't know how to say that exactly. but um, Okay. Well, feel free to break in any time with anything, and I'll just – So, yeah, like the or perhaps the league that made famous, the three-point shot. Maybe some fans know that the ABA gave birth to the slam dunk contest. Astute basketball fans think of it as the league that gave us Julius Irving, Larry Brown, Doug Moe, and Connie Hawkins, as well as Moses Malone and a couple other high school kids who went straight to the pros. Some even remember that it was the birthplace of the San Antonio Spurs, the Denver Nuggets, the New Jersey Nets, and the Indiana Pacers. That, like, sets the stage... And then I have that same quote that you just read, the we had no plan none, <laughs> which mm. is it's just so crazy because I think also like you know, to me it's like only rich white dudes would think like that. Like, oh, let's just build a new league, like <laughs> yeah. and, and get away with it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um and then I have, as veteran agent Ron Grinker said, the NBA was a symphony, the ABA was jazz. And I, of course, had to highlight that because that's the famous... Go back. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: There's a lot of really great quotes in this book. Um, but not really... Uh, so <laughs> you can continue quoting on. I, I, I listened to the audiobook, so I didn't, like, highlight much individual quotes, but I, I do have a few notes on the book.
0: Oh, awesome. Yeah. Um, jump well, in anytime or go for it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I got to head out uh, pretty soon, but so let me just go through these.
1: Sure.
2: Um, um, one thing that was really poignant was h- how many stories there were of, you know, teams not doing well, losing money and then selling to another group. That eventually lost money too um yeah. but but <laughs> one, of, one of the things that the aba did that the nba never really did was because they were trying to get so many teams and to establish themselves they they tried a lot of different things in regards to the location the regional franchise was the thing that didn't exist like how the the whole story about how a rider came up with the idea of a regional franchise and how terrible it was because they had like three cities one of them was their home city and two of them were basically away games. Yeah. So um, well, that was like uh, Carolina, um, the Cougars. Um, obviously like San Antonio wastes more than Dallas, but the chaparrales, it just didn't work. and then immediately did well in San Antonio because, you know, small towns are passionate for their teams. And nowadays we have 30 NBA teams. It's, it's, the ABA didn't come – like, the, the rate of expansion for the NBA never would have been the way it was.
0: Yeah, that's a great Because point. they were
2: pretty stubborn on the, the number of teams that they, they had. Um, I think my favorite part of the book was the Oakland Oaks and the whole Rick Berry stuff. Yeah. Honestly, absolutely crazy. Like, the, the, the fact that he had to sit out a whole year and he did, like, broadcast and, like, played in rec stadiums and stuff – and Then came and then they basically won. Like when he came back, that was crazy. The whole Rick Berry stuff is crazy. Um,
0: it's so funny the fact that they uh, went I mean, through that with like more than one player, too, where it was like, Yeah, yeah, you know, everything was like a constant lawsuit and they're like <laughs> losing money out the wazoo. And like, <laughs> it's just like, what uh, just insane but yet they had like yeah they did have some of the best players in basketball you know too which is kind mm. of crazy and the fact that they could even and, attract and, him in the first place
2: yeah yeah that, that was crazy like you get the right stuff and that, that's what appeals to people you know like at some point money isn't everything yeah um, the the one thing like Listening to all the talk about the play style, you know, about teams going all in on offense and then scoring 116 a night uh, as our Kings average 125. It's absolutely hilarious to hear. But a lot of the talk was kind of dated because this was written in like the 80s and 90s and like the whole NBA, we basically play ABA basketball now. Yeah, It's all threes and shooting and pace and space and speed and...
0: Exactly. Without the
2: ABA, we wouldn't have this offensive league that we have now. Like the, the the ABA might have lost in terms of mind share and money and brand, but they won. Yeah, because everything the ABA implemented is is the the NBA. They are the NBA now.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think. I mean, they make he makes a really good case that the ABA really put on a better show in total. Right? Like, yeah. Uh-huh. Doing all the giveaways and I mean all the you know the concerts and the the uh, contests and that was all ABA stuff and uh, yeah it just yeah
2: no reason to be conservative about having a good show
0: yeah totally like the whole
2: idea of like Showtime the whole idea of um, they're 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 selling a like a, a they're selling a ticket they're trying to attract people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like. Like a lot of this probably wasn't on purpose because, you know, all these ABA teams drew horribly, but you know, that was, I mean, it led to better, better experiences.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that they gave people second chances too, that it was like an (laughs) avenue for people who maybe, you know, or even like some of the guys, they like went out and find them, found them like working factory jobs or whatever, and like gave them this opportunity, and some of them even like you know made it all the way to the NBA from the ABA. Like, but they just yeah. for whatever reason life had not worked out that way for them. Or if you didn't go to college and go the normal route, it just wasn't.
2: Or or even if you were just shorter, like like the whole emphasis and fixation on size led a lot of these shorter guards to get overlooked, and then they absolutely destroyed it in yeah. the NBA. Yeah. Because, you know, they're skilled players. Yeah. Like, ultimately, skill is what matters.
0: Small ball. It's the, it's the beginning of small ball. Um, so, yeah, it's really fascinating. How far did you get in it, Kevin? Did you end up being able to finish it? or?
2: No, I wasn't able to finish it. That's pretty um, I, I still have, yeah, I still have, like, I think four hours left. Yeah. Like, the, the last, like, few chapters when when they, they do the actual merger part. How many
1: hours is the audiobook? I'm curious.
2: <laughs> uh, it's pretty long. I've been chewing at it, like, basically all month. <laughs>
1: I should have done that whole thing where you do do Audible and then Kindle and you sync them up and you listen and then you sync to the what you're reading and you sync to what yeah. you're listening. I should have done that.
0: that I know far. I considered that, too, because this, this one really... Uh, this was probably the, the hardest for me to stay super engaged in. I'm not exactly sure why, but I think like yeah, it was. It's sort of the age of the material and
2: yeah. Um, yeah. There's there's some stories that feel repetitive because you know a lot of the stories of the team were pretty similar. Yeah, like it's it's interesting to listen to the history of certain team, but you know after the third failed team about after the Miami (laughs) Floridians and the uh, Baltimore Claws and the Charlotte Cougar. I mean, the Carolina Cougars, you know, it it, it does sound repetitive after a while.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, Do you have more Kevin or?
2: I I have like one or two more. Um, This book reinforced one of the beliefs I have because it came up so often. X's and O's and like aggressive coaching is 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 completely overrated. Um most of the best coaches in the ABAs like treated players like adults. Like it's pro basketball. They're not yeah. kids. Yeah. They don't need to be treated like kids. So so you need to implement a system that the team buys into, cultivate a good atmosphere, you know, get players to like you. Get and ultimately you do have to coach, but like like, the reason Mike Brown worked when so, mo- so much more of our X and O-oriented coaches didn't was because now we have buy-in by all of our guys. Yeah. And I, I, that's that's one thing that I, I think I took away from this, that, you know, y- y- you see it over and over again.
0: I guess, like, I I understand what you're saying, but I also disagree slightly. Like, one thing that it made me really think about was especially Larry Brown, like, I've yeah. I've always been sort of prejudiced against Larry Brown because of his relationship with Allen Iverson. And I kind of blamed him for, for Allen Iverson being so misunderstood. And, but then I sort of started like this, I mean, all of the coaching jobs that he had in the ABA and he coached all different styles of basketball in the ABA. Mm-hmm. And then he came to the NBA, coached the Spurs, coached the Pistons, coached the Sixers and those were all totally different uh, basketball styles. So it kind of yeah. made me have, like, more appreciation for him as a coach, too. And like you're saying. Yeah,
2: being flexible yeah. With, with your style of play. Be, build them around your players, not, not be fixated on a play style.
0: Yeah, and then the one coach that, you know, stood out to me because he's also one of my favorite commentators of all time is Hubie Brown. And I, I he was yeah. only the coach of that it, it really only covered him being the successful coach of I can't even remember which team in their successful year. And um uh, but that he talks about like basketball in a very modern way in terms of like analytics and stuff like that. But he even says that's like not how he started teaching it, you know, or not how he Yeah. But it sounds like he was sort of a hard ass in terms of like drills and um you know but but at the same time was, it was successful. Uh, kentucky
3: by the
2: way
0: yes right
2: kentucky yeah, yeah the, the team the the bridesmaid the team that couldn't win championships even though they were considered the best for a lot of the time
0: yeah yeah
2: yeah and my last note i had was this book made me appreciate george Mike a lot more yeah like, you know nowadays he's <laughs> Kind of the end of the, he's the punchline for a lot of jokes is like disrespected. It like, if you played George Mike and he'd get destroyed by even role players in the current NBA kind of stuff, man, the best player for the first 50 years and then influential in making the ABA exist without him, we wouldn't have the three point shot without him. We wouldn't have the, the ABA colored ball without him. You know, the ABA probably wouldn't have lasted as long as it did. Yeah, So
0: yeah yeah for sure that was really I, th- I think the people that I recognized in here my esteem for them grew like I didn't know that George Carl was an ABA player and mm. and he just yeah. tweeted something out like today or yesterday about how Utah should go back to using their ABA name you just, know so he's still yeah. he still thinks about it and tweets about it and
2: mm-hmm. and <laughs> reading through this book like you you just see the ABA it's like a whole world you you never would have known has been unlocked like everywhere you look there's like ABA nods yeah
0: absolutely yeah
1: or they should call the LA team the stars they did call them the stars right that's the LA ABA team was the stars yeah it was the the stars and then they
2: moved to Utah yeah
0: Yeah.
1: Utah shouldn't be the jazz that's not so the Jazz
0: were the New, the Orleans, New Orleans team, New Orleans, but yeah. then since they moved yeah. around all the time, um, yeah, and like the owners changed, and I don't, I don't even know what ended up happening or why they took the Jazz name, or like the, how Denver was the Rockets until
2: that was that was hilarious. <laughs> like like they're at a point in time there were two Rockets.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so funny. <laughs> Which is crazy. And the chaparrales. Who names their team like the Oaks? Like, why would you name your team a tree type? Like, that's just bizarre. Yeah. It's funny.
2: The the Memphis Tams is the worst name I've heard. (laughs) Yeah. In in, in a long time.
0: Bad, bad, bad. So, let me see. So, okay. I mean... Dunk contest. Let's, uh, let's see if I can like find a spot to restart my little. Yeah. Um, the,
2: I, Sorry for derailing.
0: The, the dunk was so important to the NBA. Pre game warmups became a show. So that to me, like that's like what Steph does now, right? With his little trick shots. Yeah. Um, and then it, the ABA gave a chance to Doug Moe, Connie Hawkins, and Roger Brown, who were in like. Okay so I looked up Connie the point Hawkins fixing scandal yeah, thing Yeah but it was it, it they were innocent anyways they just got blacklisted um and there was never like anything proven there was never any evidence there was never any like charges brought they just got totally blacklisted so the ABA like gave them a way to get back into basketball um actually so Connie Hawkins's biography is called foul and um, sorry getting a text um, and it's like it's crazy expensive because it's out of print but I found a used copy for a dollar so I'm hoping they send it to me and I'll, I can make it into a PDF if people are interested in it but he struggled a lot he finally made it to the NBA but they said like by that time his knees were kind of gone um, but I've heard so the old fashioned three, the show that Jerry Reynolds and Phantom and um, Whitey Gleason do. The Phantom s- has said that, that Connie Hawkins was his favorite player of all time, so I was kind wow. of like perking my ears up for that, yeah, because I guess he just did really crazy stuff as a guard that like nobody had ever seen before, and um. So anyways, uh, so then the ABA players and coaches forced a faster pace of the game. They pushed the ball up the court. They created a more exciting brand of basketball, Um, the kind of basketball you see in most of the NBA today when the Knicks were pressing and shooting three-pointers. So people acted as if it was a new thing, but that's what. Then they talk about the ball. I kind of wish we had the red, white, and blue ball. Like my eyes suck. I think I'd be able to see it a lot better, you know?
1: Yeah. That would be, that would probably be better. Um, just fun, more fun.
0: Yeah. And that when they were talking about being able to like give away hundreds of them to kids, I think that's just cool. Um, and then the, the, the Lee Mead says like having some like offhand conversation and said like, Hey, I'd really like to see this league go. If you need someone to help with the stats, let me know. Like, And they take him up on it. (laughs) And then he gets like a call, you know, hey, you're going to keep all the stats, right? Um, So he came up with the following new stats, rebounds, offensive and defensive. The NBA just kept total rebounds. Individual turnovers, we called them errors. The NBA didn't keep the stats. Steals, the NBA did not keep it. Blocked shots, NBA didn't keep it team rebounds. The NCAA used it, but the NBA didn't. Uh, Those were pretty cool. Um, And then it starts going into like Connie Hawkins um, and the little man stuff you were talking about. Um, Connie Hawkins, Roger Brown, Doug Moe. Um, So Connie Hawkins was very excited to sign with the Pipers. And meanwhile, his lawyers were suing the NBA to let him into the NBA because, of course, you can't be an ABA pl- player without having an active lawsuit against the NBA. Um, so he was so great, he could just control the game without breaking a sweat. Everyone who knew basketball knew about the Hawk, and they knew it galled him not to play in the NBA. Um, Oscar Robertson had told me that the two best players in America, not in the NBA were Connie Hawkins and Roger Brown. And then it talks a lot about Slick Leonard and, um, and the Indiana team, I think. And he's slick says the funny thing was that I was kicking over chairs and throwing things long before Bobby Knight did. And then someone writes a book about Bobby Knight and makes a million dollars. Um. And I think can it was
1: like Leonard. Can I talk about uh, the coach before Slick Leonard? Uh, yeah, the guy yeah, who was not qualified, or they they thought he was not qualified at least, and maybe yeah, maybe he wasn't. But um, <laughs> but I wanted to um read something. It's I, I I thought about summarizing it, but um, it'd probably be a lot less poignant if I summarized it rather than read it. Um, it's gonna take a while though. But his name is Larry Steverman. He, uh, the first season they went 38-40 and, and then they started the next season 1-7. and seven. And uh, I guess they're 1-7 when the GM said, Storen told me, his name is Mike Storen, told me, I made a decision to relieve you as coach of the Indiana Pacers. Close quote. He said it in exactly those terms, almost as if you're reading it from a press release. I was shocked. I had no idea it was coming. Storen said, what do you want to do about tonight's game? Because they're playing that night, apparently. And then the reading goes, I had no assistant. We were playing the LA Stars. I said, I'll be on the bench. We went out and beat the Stars that night, so they were two and seven. The players didn't know that I had been fired. When the game was over, I locked the dressing room and I yelled at them, praised them. I gave a very emotional talk. I told each guy what he needed to do to improve his game, to survive as a pro. Then I walked out of the dressing room and went to a scooter part of the arena where I knew that no one would see me crying. I was 30 years old. To be told, you're not good enough to do the job you always wanted. wanted. It has to hurt. I was too young and not really prepared for life in the ABA. I, was also, I also was naive and didn't look out for myself as well as I should have. The thing that meant the most to me came when we went home after that game in L.A. The word about firing wasn't released until I got to my house. Then I went out for a bike ride with my kid. When I got back, the entire Pacer starting team was waiting for me in my driveway. They came to say that they felt bad about me being fired and that it wasn't my fault. That they had let me down. It was a tremendous gesture because most of the time when the pro coaches fired, the players just shrug and wait for the next guy to take over. If these are quality people, and I'll never forget pedaling to my driveway and seeing those players waiting for me. And that's the end um, of his contribution to the book, I'm guessing. I didn't see him any after. after yeah. That
0: yeah.
1: So, but that was uh, poignant in a couple of different ways. You know, um, he um, he didn't tell him he was fired, he didn't, you know, bemoan himself and whine and, you know, bitch about it to his players or to anyone else, or just like quit and like walk away from the game that he was supposed to, that they needed someone to coach the, that that game that night. He coached it. And, uh, and then, and, you know, it sucks. Uh, I just like to get a little personal for myself. It's like, you know, he was 30 years old and he, I don't know if he, he apparently he never tried to coach again or he never tried to coach professionally again, because he says, uh, to be told you're not good enough to do the job you always wanted. It has to hurt. And, um, you know, that sucks. Um, I kind yeah. of, I kind of identify with him a little bit, not in the sense of like being told that the job I love, I never really had a job I really wanted to do in love, but you know, I really thought you know I didn't really plan to be anything special, <laughs> and I turned out to be nothing special. You know, I'm just an ordinary <laughs> dude, and um, and it just kind of it, 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 something there, something about that, about like I didn't I didn't expect to be this way. I guess I should have planned to be something special if I wanted to be something special, but I didn't plan to be, and uh, it turned out to be pretty ordinary. And uh, I kind of identified with him there, you know, when he when he when he said what he said there, but he when his, yeah, he and then of the course the players coming over, the starting lineup coming to see him and you know say they're sorry that they, they let him down and stuff and it's a pretty good gesture
0: pretty I touching. love that he told so. them all what he thought they needed to do too I think that's yeah. really like I that's like one of those things in life like where I've had like teachers and stuff who have just said like one thing to me that has like changed the whole course of my life you know what I mean mm-hmm. like where somebody just like takes the time to be super honest with you and and, and I, I wonder, you know, what impact that had for those players, like if they were able to to take some of that to heart. But I mean, it sounds like that group stayed together for a long time, had a ton of fun and played great basketball, um, even though it was then it was, after, you know, under a different coach after that.
1: Right, yeah. The coach. I have more stuff on from about uh, about Stuck Leonard. If you want to get into him, um, I have some stuff about him. I, the stuff I highlighted that I think could apply to the Kings, you know, um, or any well, any basketball team. But I'm a fan of yeah. the Kings, so that's what I care about. But um, yeah, go ahead.
0: I, the yeah. only one I have is the, is all that X's and O's talk is garbage. Basketball isn't a complicated game. The coach's job is to keep the team together. I've never met a player in my life or, who didn't think he was better than he really was. Coach has to understand that most guys walk around wearing a sign that says, Pat me on the back, tell me I can play, say something that will make me feel good. That's why I spent far more time teaching the guys to trust and respect each other than I did on the technical stuff. And I thought that was really
1: That's cool because I
0: that's true, you know? Yeah,
1: good. Well, go ahead if you want to talk about that because I, oh, no. I, I highlighted right before that and right after that is what I highlighted for first Oh, Slick yeah, Leonard, go for, for it. Slick Leonard. Yeah. I just just keep in mind as I say this, if you're a, for whatever fan that you, you are, of whatever team you are, if you're listening, like apply this to your team. And I apply it to the Kings, I'm a Kings fan. But all he says above that, all great coaches had teams that were together and were physically and mentally tougher than the teams they were playing. So my practices weren't long, but they were demanding, as rough as I could make them. I ran the guys until they dropped, and I ran them some more. That was how they not only became strong mentally, but also physically. Then, when a clutch situation came up, we were physically in condition to be strong at the end of the game, and we were mentally strong enough not to panic. We believed in each other and that we'd win. When I took over the Pacers, Roger Mel, and the rest, and suddenly become great players. They had the talent. I just helped them to bring it out. I made demands on them that no one else did. And so, like you know, that's what they, that's the value, I guess, even in the even in a pro league, not a high school and a college league, but in a pro league, of running of running guys and making them making them uh, work in practice is because, you know, it gets them, toughens them up mentally and physically, of course, physically, but also mentally. If you keep toughen them up mentally by being kind of a, a hard ass and a, and, a, and a prick, but, um, you know, but yeah, um, hope, it's very, to like, up, but yeah. it
0: reminds me of Pete Carrill too, where he said, like, I always try to make my practices harder than the game. So the games are easy, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, that, yeah.
0: This is like a similar kind of philosophy of like, You know, practice it until it's perfect and then it's easy, you know, and uh, yeah, interesting.
1: Yeah. And then the last thing I had for Slick Leonard pretty much, I think, is that uh, right after what you read, uh, I would tell them on day one of practice that they could do something spectacular if they decided to do it together. I told them that we were were a special group and that we had the obligations to play ourselves to, to ourselves to play like that. The guys knew that and responded and pretty soon the whole team came together like a hand in the glove. So, yeah, I mean, he's just kind of a, he's more as you the part you read, you know, he's more of an inspirational coach, more of a training them coach, more of a toughing them up coach than he is on all the technical stuff. I guess, I guess I'm, I, I, I just, I just am curious if, if anyone, yeah, I'm curious about the technical stuff because I don't know it yet. And I want to learn it. I am learning it to a certain degree, but I don't know. I know a lot more people know a lot more than I do, but, uh, I like that stuff because it's something you can you can use as a fan to, to see what's going on and understand it. But like, of course, if, I think it's probably probably more important. But why not both? Why not both? But uh, it's probably more important to have that mentality, that toughness, that togetherness, that team team camaraderie. It's more important than knowing you know a blind pig or whatever the hell that is. You know what that means. Yeah. For, um, but uh, but it, why not both? Is what I would say. You know why not both.
0: Well, I mean, I like, I think also, I mean, it comes up in another place in here. I think one of Larry Brown's teams it comes up too, but like where they're talking about like not basically like what Pete Carell said was like, don't be greedy, like share the ball, you know, or -hmm. even when they talked about Connie Hawkins, they were saying like, um, you know, he could have gone out and just scored 50 points every night but he wanted to play the game the right way. And that meant that he went out and scored 15 and had 15 assists. You know what I mean? And it's like part of the, I mean, maybe it's from having this Kings team this, this year too, but like part of the beauty about good basketball is that the team is better than the individual. Right. So if you can trust your teammates, you're going to be a better team. Right. Mm-hmm. Instead mm-hmm. of just having a star, um,
1: mm-hmm. Although Darren is pretty good at the one-on-one he, deal, I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, little little, little sidetrack, but yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, it's it's I'm just really gonna look forward to if we make the playoffs, if the team make, if the Kings make the playoffs to uh to uh like you know how Rudy Gay sometimes just be like he's the guy at the end of the game when he was on our team he would be the guy like to to take that shot and it just they it just always did this one-on-one crap like it was always just like. One on one, no screen. Yeah. No no movement. Just like give the ball to Gay and let him go to work one on one or a pull up jump shot. That always frustrated me, but like I trust Fox to do that. I trust Fox. Like if they're going to, if they're not going to double team him, then go to work and get that shot because I trust Fox to do that. But uh,
0: I think like I, I, I'm like feel so mixed about it because like last night's game specifically. Okay. Like he had this incredible fourth quarter, right? Where he, He had like 29 points for the game, but 21 of them were in the fourth quarter, but it still wasn't enough, you know? So I don't know how they figure out how to like overcome that and get more people involved. And maybe the getting more people involved has to happen earlier in the game too. But like, it's amazing to watch because they know what's coming. The other team knows it's going to be De'Aaron Fox, right? Mm -hmm. And they still can't stop him. Like, yeah. they still don't have any answers. But at the same time, I don't know that it's like a good, consistently winning strategy yeah. to just always be counting on him to superstar. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I, agree. I, I totally agree. Yeah, I agree with you that it may not. It, it, well, I agree that it may not be the best. Yeah, may, there may be a better way to do it.
0: Um, Although there are some, I mean, in here too, like later when they talk about like Julius Irving when Julius Irving became Julius Irving, where he was like, "I need, I'll just just give me the ball at the end of the game," and they're like, "But what if you miss?" and he's like, "Well, I won't miss," and he just didn't, <laughs> you know. And it's like. I mean, there are some players like that. So maybe you just game plan around that, you know. Um, but, and this team, the Indiana team, it sounded like they were together off the court. I mean, they had the whole bar scene thing happening and the cowboy thing. And yeah. um, it sounds like it went to like a new level of camaraderie, you know, which, I mean, everyone that, that's in here seems to like kind of say like that, those were the best times of my life. You know, it's like such a great team and we valued, you know, the experiences and, and then there was some guy in there who I don't have it outlined or anything, but who was kind of saying like nowadays, all they care about is money, you know, and back in my day, it was about basketball and camaraderie and all that. But that was probably some kind of get off my line lawn type guy. Um,
1: Yeah, I I I see your I see your thread here. I'm going to talk about uh, Roger Brown if you don't mind uh, for a second.
0: Uh, Oh yeah, talk about
1: him, but just read 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 something and then talk about him. But um, you know, Roger Brown gives some background for people that didn't read the book. Is uh, he was with Connie Hawkins. He was also I think you already said this, Meg, but he was excluded from the NBA, banned from the NBA, whatever they called it for for some some kind of scandal. That um, Connie eventually got contested it and was able to get into the NBA. But Roger never left the ABA. Um, he says, uh, the best thing that happened to me was signing with the Pacers and getting to play with Neto, Freddie, Lewis, and Mel Daniels. I loved Indianapolis and the Pacers, and that was why I turned down a chance to jump to the NBA after the Connie Hawkins case. I never forgot that the NBA wouldn't let me play, but the ABA did. The NBA had to pay me quite a nice settlement from that case, but I noticed I had no desire to play in that league. Not when I could stay with the Pacers and be a part of a great team. I still live in Indianapolis today, where I have several businesses. The patients in the town have been great to me, so that I I like that because, like you know, screw them guys, you know, screw, yeah. screw the NBA if they if they're gonna like do this stupid case and apparently do it do it incorrectly or whatever at the very least and keep you out of the league for so many years. It's like he'll you know, take them he'll you know, take their money and play in the ABA. Yeah, I
0: mean, yeah yeah instead
1: of giving them more money by playing for them you know he'll he'll take their money and playing the aba so
0: it's so like that quote it's such a bummer that so many of these i mean i i don't like go deep into like digging into archival basketball (laughs) footage or anything like that but it's kind of a bummer that there just isn't very much you know because it wasn't on tv or wasn't recorded for the most part you know because it sounds like I mean, Pete sounds like people loved him specifically, and thought he was really good. And we'll just never know, you know.
1: Yeah, not not like it, only people like Jerry would know. You know, I'm sure Jerry could be talked could talk about yeah. it. at least.
0: Um, yeah.
1: Oh, he passed in '97. That sucks. He was only uh, what's that? 50 55 years old.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. He
1: passed a little bit before his 50th birthday, actually. So 50, 55th birthday. So. It's too
0: bad. So you have um, more on that Indiana team?
1: No, I'm done. I'm done. Uh,
0: so then the, the next part was what they were talking about um, I can't remember. I think this was the Floridians team that Larry and Doug Moe were were or Larry was coaching and Doug Moe was his assistant. The oh, Carolina um,
1: Cougars, I believe, right? Oh
0: yeah, you're right. Yeah. Um, So, but this stood out to me. The idea is simple. When you get the ball, you have two counts, 1001 and 1002 to do something. If you haven't shot it or made a strong move to the basket by then, pass the ball and cut to the basket or go someplace. The idea was to keep the ball moving. He hated isolation basketball where a guy got the ball on one side of the court and everyone else stood on the other side and watched him go one on one. So that stood out because obviously because of read and react basketball, and this is so you know so much before that. But it also stood out because he was the ultimate coach of Iverson, who was the ultimate ISO dude. Oh, right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but right. um, yeah. But I mean, that I thought these little stories about this team was fun. I think I can't remember if this is. Let, let's see. So, but by the end of the year. It was working. The ball was moving around. The egos were in check. The defense defense was great. Larry had done a do- lot of super coaching jobs in his life, but I think this was his best. It was like he turned around that franchise for a little while.
1: Yeah, I have a quote from there, but it's just humorous. Uh, it take me a second to get it. Oh wait, I can. I know what I can do. I can do the whole quote finder thing. It's my last quote. Um, so Doug Moe is his assistant Doug Moe is a good player in the ABA uh, I forget why he was in the ABA and not the NBA But um, uh, he wrote He said he got a big knee injury His knees were gone, couldn't play anymore He was told by the co- by doctors He says, uh, Larry Brown knew what he wanted to do With the rest of his life, they are good friends I had no idea, so when the doctor told me that my Knee was shoddy to forget about playing basketball I was open to first suggestions Then Larry showed up and asked me to be his assistant And I said, why not? I don't want to get a real job <laughs>
0: <laughs> I so and I think the story was I don't have it like highlighted either but I think the story was that basically Larry um, Larry and Doug came in together because okay. Okay, like yeah. they, one of them and I can't remember who was doing what but I think Doug Moe was blacklisted and they would let him play in the ABA and so he got he got Larry to come with him and Larry was too short to play in the NBA, but they would let him play in the ABA and he was really good. But it was like crazy how many times they just have the players coach the team or the coaches playing on the team, Mm -hmm. like, or the players just became coaches. (laughs) It's like, okay. And there's only like one to two coaches anyways. Um. Yeah, so anyways, that I thought that part was really good about the Carolina Panthers. And then he starts talking about this Wendell Laudner, um, six foot four, two twenty pound two hundred and twenty pound forward, played for four teams, and then he got killed in a plane crash. But I guess he was just like a total personality. Um, and they say he was like a big overgrown kid he had oh, two track mind basketball and sex he <laughs> used hairspray before games and at halftime so he looked good for the ladies he liked to shoot the ball from unbelievable distances and that would drive any coach nuts but he played so hard you had to love him poor Wendell he really was dumb as a post but he had a great personality um, <laughs> And then that was like, I, I was publicity director for the Colonels when we did the Wendell Ladnar hairy chest poster. We stole the idea from Burt Reynolds, who had posed for Cosmopolitan. Wendell's poster sold out in a day. It was like, he was like a total ladies' man. Um, and he got like an infection, I guess. And this one just was funny. It, was, it looks like you've been having sex too much. Wendell said, You think so? It was, he's at the doctor. And the doctor said, Well, how many times a day do you have sex? And Wendell said, I don't know, three or four times. The doctor said, Wendell, that's too much. And Wendell said, Well, it's never with the same girl.
1: <laughs> <laughs> never with the same girl. Wow.
0: <laughs> anyway, and so I there was a cup there was a picture down here because he was I guess he was the inspiration for the Jackie Moon character or part of the inf- inspiration. Uh-huh. And then also there are just a couple pictures of like the horrible outfits that Doug Moe and Larry Brown wore because they mentioned that in here too like Larry Brown's overalls <laughs> it's like <laughs> oh dear <laughs> yeah. um, and then I put in here I had made this this racing bar chart of three point shots and it's cool to look at it because it just like mo- a lot of the leading three points were actually ABA guys oh um, wow yeah, I mean it starts off with ABA, obviously, but it basically oh, right. Dampier, Louis Dampier was like the three point shot leader for years, I think, uh, until like the two thousands, the late two thousands. So not the late two thousands, but the late two thousand tens. Anyways, um, so then it goes into a bunch of Julia serving stuff, um. Julius just dominated the practice defensively. I mean, he made steal after steal, taking away guys' dribbles, picking off passes, and it seemed like with those long arms and huge hands, he came up with every loose ball. Um, and this was like the team where they tried to like play defense, and it they were playing defense like so hard they got completely tired out, and uh, they weren't winning any games because they couldn't finish the games. So we admitted that we made a coaching mistake by trying to press all the time. We were usually in front after three quarters, but then fatigue would catch us and we'd blow the lead down the stretch. Um, We were wearing Julius out because he was working so hard on defense. So they switched it up and they stopped playing defense for the whole game and then they started winning and they won like crazy um and then this and then the julius kevin i'll take the last shot kevin said he got chills when he heard doc say that it was almost like the (laughs) voice of god so kevin says okay guys if doc misses the hand came back on kevin's shoulder and julius said kevin i won't miss
1: (laughs) he sounds like i only read the first few chapters first few sections about dr j but he sounds like just he does sound he sounds like a demigod in in the book. I don't know if what he was like in real life, but he sounds like well, a I think
0: he really was the demigod of the ABA because he played for so long, he was so good mm-hmm. um and um and nobody knew about him, so he was like you know he was like the basketball nerds Tyrese Halliburton or whatever of the time. right right like, if you were lucky enough to have seen him play. You know, and then he did go to the NBA, too, and was fantastic in the NBA as well. But I think all of these guys, after playing whatever, five, six, seven years, you know, of the ABA, where there was, like, fights every game, and, like, (laughs) some of them were, like, shot, you know, by the time they got to the NBA. So John Sterling said, in the last year of the ABA, Julius was having a great game, even by his incredible standards. He was making one mind-boggling play after another, and there was hardly any noise because it was a very small crowd. After one dunk over three guys, Kevin Loffery, Lo- Lo- I don't know how to say his name, called a timeout. When the players came to the bench, Kevin went up to Julius and said, I called that timeout because I wanted to tell you that you've just played the greatest three-minute stretch of basketball I have ever seen. Well, That was kind of cool. And then the, the it was in training camp where julius first got the nickname doctor willie sojourner would say there's the doctor digging into his bag again whenever julius came up with a new dunk then he became dr j as the others picked it up his very modern nickname yeah um let me see so I've, i've skipped over a lot i think one thing that um I should have put in here that I didn't is like the discussion about the whole dog plan or whatever. Yeah. yeah where they were like yeah. signing guys and like deferring half of their contracts.
1: They just they knew that They're they like could invest money and it. it would go up.
0: <laughs> yeah. Which is kind of brilliant in some ways. Like it's kind of a built in retirement plan a little bit. I mean, yeah, but it, it uh, didn't
1: keep up with inflation. I would imagine.
0: Yeah towards the end well, of that, and,
1: towards the end of it they'd be like okay this is a nice little chunk of change but it's not um it's not going to yeah. I, I need more than this to survive this year you know so, so
0: yeah and it sounds like a lot of players like sued them and although right. even like the ones that sued them and got all their money up front kind of spent it on stupid shit in my opinion like and like i think in some ways they might have been better off like leaving it invested and like not you know just blowing it on, I don't know cars. Mostly, yeah, it depends on
1: the person. Really, it depends on the yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and everyone and they signed the contract. It's they, they, as, as, as long as they knew what they were signing. They knew what they were, Some didn't. It feels like some. Well, they should have known. Maybe what they didn't know what they were doing when they signed those contracts. They thought they were getting yeah with that two million, but they were getting the deferred payments over many
0: years. The other one I didn't put in here is when they tried to. Um recruit Lou Alcindor and they hired like all the psychologists and everything (laughs) to tell them like the best way. And then the guys had like a million dollar check and like blew it and didn't offer it like, and didn't do the plan at all and completely lost the great, you know, one of the greatest basketball players ever known to man. Uh I mean, who knows if he would have signed with the ABA or not, but just the fact that they did all that groundwork and like spent a bunch of money and like had this strategy and the guys were like, nah, we'll just do our own thing.
1: <laughs> I remember there was one line in there where the guy's like, it, it, so George Michael was going in there and some other guy I forget his name. And it's like, I should have. Been, it would have been nice if this other guy could go in there. So we have one person, at least one person with a brain would be in there, but uh, we didn't do <laughs> that. It was just Those two guys.
0: <laughs> oh Lord. Um, so I skipped over a lot. I mean, it's a great book. Uh, I, it was. I don't know if I would have finished it without a deadline. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I also think it's very worth reading all of it. The Moses Malone stuff I found to be really. It's hard to tell if like they're saying that he's dumb, yeah. but they're definitely saying he wasn't college material. You know that it was like ridiculous to think that college would somehow be a great idea for him. Um, And they, the story that I didn't put in here is they tell a story about a scout going to see his game. And he was playing for like one team in the first half. And that team started kicking the other team's ass by like a hundred points. So they took Moses out and they put him on the other team for the second half. And the, the other team made up that hundred points and lost the game by two points. Wow. So Moses was a crazy good basketball player. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah.
0: He was a rookie of the year
1: and, and, and MVP in NBA. Well, I guess he was, he'd already had a few years in the ABA. So yeah. So,
0: yeah. So, um, but it was really sweet. I mean, this is like, so in his first high school varsity game, Malone scored 32 points. He was a ninth grader at the time. His high school team won 50 consecutive games and two state championships. Um, He was just good. Um, And then it talks a lot about his mom and how his mom, you know, had been working her ass off and they were dirt poor. And uh, Mary Malone had pictures of Martin Luther King Jr., John and Jackie Kennedy, Jesus Christ, and her son. I just thought that was really sweet like just somebody working herself to the bone, you know, and he has a chance to help her out. And, and she was sick too. Um, So to me, the key point was that no one had ever said Moses has to go to college. They agreed that they needed money and they agreed that Moses wanted to play basketball. And when I heard that, I knew we had a great shot at getting it done. Um, Gerald Govon, who had been in the ABA since day one and was sort of Moses' patron and protector, Govon started telling me what kind of rebounder the kid was. So the early line on Moses that that no one knew um, what else he could do, but he could rebound. And then, uh, so Del Harris has this, I just thought this was really funny. Like, I coached Moses with Tom Nisalki in Utah, and Moses just lived off his offensive rebounding. He was so young, six 6'11", 270 pounds, to 17 pounds in his second pro season. He could run faster than anyone on the team, even our guards. We had a player who said that he could run up, jump, and touch his head on the rim. The guy did it, but Moses wasn't impressed. He just grunted, walked under the basket, and standing still, jumped up and touched his head on the rim, which is pretty amazing when you think about it yeah his, and his then in his second year, Moses broke his foot in an exhibition game. The trainer looked at it and said he couldn't find anything wrong foot broken Moses said, and he refused to play, and he was right his foot was broken okay so and he you know again turned out to be a fantastic uh uh n b a player as well as a b a um And then they talk about like a trainer who had all these weird ideas about like put an empty oxygen tank next to the bench and guys would like go and huff off of it and say they felt better even though there was nothing in it. But I thought this was they will tell you exactly where you find the middle of the free throw line directly in front of the basket. That indent came from where they pounded a nail into the floor to tie a string from under the rim to where the free throw line was supposed to be. Frank felt that people missed free throws because they didn't line up dead center in front of the basket. He had a thousand weird things like that. Uh, I mean, some of this is just, you know, more stuff about Julius, more stuff about artists, um, artist Gilmore, and then it talks. Oh,
2: go for it. I mean, it was basically just yeah. so a compound interest plan. What yeah, stood yeah. out to me was, was I mean, so obviously that's all fake money. They didn't have the money, so they, like, inflate the numbers with the compound interest. Um, what stood out to me the most was the agents in that part, like how they're talking about how many agents basically sold out players. To the ABA because I mean, the ABA and the NBA were paying off the agents. Like, I wonder how many agents nowadays are like that, where like they don't really have the interests of the players in mind. And oh,
0: no, I think it happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It happens all the time. But it's something you don't think about until it's like explicitly told to you.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the thing about like in the end, it kind of ended up helping everybody because. Even though the Dolgoff plan itself wasn't paying the players the amount of money that they were saying it was, it still was like inflating the numbers on paper. So the NBA made their contracts bigger and then the ABA made their contracts bigger. So it was like, you know, warring uh, raises basically for the players, which I mean, I think was a good thing overall. I mean, you could argue yeah. that players get paid too much or, or whatever, but um, I think it helped to like get pay or play up, you know, at the time uh, better than it was before that in the NBA anyways. And I think yeah, and the NCAA stuff and the agent stuff is mixed in with that as well, where the agents sometimes would get kickbacks from the colleges. As well as from the ABA or the NBA, you know, I think the NCA stuff is really interesting just because it lasted that way for so long without it changing. And I mean, that this book really makes the case that it was just basically a scam to make money off the of athletes, you know. Um, I've lost my place a little bit. Let me see. Oh, it talks about when the ABA and the NBA went against each other and the NBA was like, oh, we didn't really want to win those games anyway. Um, and uh, so what does it say that someone looked up? They played the Boston Celtics. Let's see. Well, to us, those games were exhibitions while the ABA was playing them like playoff games. And So we played the Celtics a couple of times and beat them. Coach Tommy Heinsohn would say that we were playing to win, and they weren't. But I'd check the box score and see that Tommy played his regular 35 to 40 minutes. So what does that tell you? Um, so then it just sort of starts talking about, you know, the decline and Good ABA teams such as Denver, Indiana, Kentucky had all those people, plus marketing directors, sales directors. They gave away posters, basketballs, all the giveaways that are common today. Um, The NBA just wrote that off as the ABA using gimmicks to attract fans, and they weren't about to stoop to such a level. Um, At Basketball Weekly, we probably wrote more about the ABA than it deserved because the people were so accessible. The Kentucky Colonels would – call and say they had a free plane ticket. If we wanted to come down and do a story, the magazine was in its infancy and we didn't have a travel budget. So sometimes we took them up on their offer. The NBA wouldn't think of doing something like that. But I was like, that caught my attention because I think we're again in a time when like, you know, basketball journalism is like, you know, fan driven, not paid very well. It's a great idea for the team to like sponsor the travel of reporters, in my opinion. Um, then it talks about the Spurs, the early Spurs. It talks about the baseline bums. To this day, most people don't know that Julia Serving and George Gervin were on the same team. Um, it sounds like a foundation for a championship team, doesn't it? But they were both young. Um, and then talks about George Gervin when he first got to the league and why don't they use the three-point shot more? And I said, coach Bianchi doesn't think it's a good percentage shot unless we're behind at the end of a game. George said, suppose you could make 15 of 20 and then he went and then he made 18 of 20. Um, And then it just talks about, like, the Spurs being super accessible and having, like, a go Spurs go club for the kids. Um, And, like, a a fan is, like, in another game we snuck down by the Spurs bench and sat right behind the team when George Gervin went for 51 points against Memphis. Um, The ABA was always fun. so it just talks about, like, the showmanship of the ABA. And um and then it talks about the Larry Brown incident where he makes a comment about the only thing good in San Antonio is the guacamole salad. And then the baseline bums like every time he comes to San Antonio, they like pour guacamole on him. And when he got hired as the Spurs coach, they gave him like a guacamole salad as a as a present. So that was sort of amusing. And then Hubie Brown. So and then Hubie's. Um, I love Hebe Brown. He's one of my all-time favorite people to listen to talk about basketball. Um, And he's probably the first person that I heard talk about it analytically. Um, And so I highlight a lot of his stuff. But So the key to winning is to win with 10 guys. If you're going to play 10, then you have to use pressure defense. Pressure defense hides a player's weaknesses. If you're playing a straight man-to-man defense, the opposition can pick out a player to exploit. In a press where people are scrambling and double-teaming, it's hard to find the weak player. So I told the guys that we were going to use 10 players, and that meant 10 guys would be contributing to the championship. So then he talks about... uh, about
1: Um
0: point differential. Sorry, I muted Nick's mic because it was loud behind him. Um, let me see if I can find it. Hi, Megaloo. Hi, Nick. How are you?
3: Good. I do want to say that you know, we need to talk about the Kings defense. You play tomorrow. You're playing tomorrow in Minnesota and you got you to gotta play better. Play better defense.
0: I agree. Do you think they should use ten men
3: I, I ten think they, man rotations? <laughs> I think they I think they should. I mean
1: Who should play I, that hasn't played? Who should go in that hasn't been going in recently? Maybe Terrence Davis
3: or someone else? I think maybe Terrence Davis. Okay.
0: Yeah. I think they're they run out of, of energy. I think yeah. that's why they don't play defense the whole game. Yeah. I think that's really true. Yeah. It, and sometimes they they turn it up and they can win by only playing it in the fourth quarter, but they can't always do that, right? Like it doesn't. It's uh, sometimes it's just like not enough to do that.
3: Yeah, and when you're yeah, and when you look at this team like right now, I'm watching a game called I'm watching the Milwaukee Bucks and Pelicans right now. It's one twenty two to one hundred five right now.
0: Oh wow! Yeah.
3: And Milwaukee is winning right now and they're about to beat the Pelicans.
0: Yeah, the Pelicans have kind of fallen apart a little bit. I'm I'm shocked by that, honestly. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I mean, you know, if Milwaukee wins if if they beat the pe- Pelicans, if Milwaukee wins, then what happens? Do they move up?
0: Uh, Milwaukee. I think Milwaukee's already on the top of the standings, uh, yeah. and the Pelicans are below us. They're below us. Yeah. They're actually below us and the Clippers now. I yeah. think. Yeah. So, they they have a few games to catch yeah. up to us. So, yeah.
3: yeah. I mean, let me. Yeah. So you know, I just hope that you know. Would you try to do something tomorrow?
0: I agree. I'm with you.
3: Why not win? Why not light the beam tomorrow? Why
0: not? Let's do it.
3: Light the Thanks beam. Thanks for
0: stopping in, Nick.
3: All right. Sleep dreams. And sleep dreams, man. Sleep beams. Sleep beam. Why not sleep beam? Why not light the beam? Can you give me a hell? Yes. Hell yes. <laughs> can you go? Go what? Do go do what Morgan says. Morgan says fire the laser.
0: Fire the laser! I can't do it as good as she can.
3: Morgan's going to have to say it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Hopefully we'll win and she'll have to say is it tomorrow. Katie,
3: is Katie going on a road trip tomorrow or are they doing it from San Francisco tomorrow?
0: No, she should be there. She was there last game.
3: No, she was in San Francisco doing broadcast.
0: Oh, really? I thought they were there. No,
3: they weren't there. They were doing broadcast in San Francisco at NBC Sports Studios.
0: Oh, I don't know them. In San
3: Francisco.
0: Yeah. All right, Nick, I'm going to continue on because we're making a podcast. I don't want it to be eight hours long. Okay. Thanks for stopping in, man.
3: Sleep beams.
0: And sit back at you. Um, so, okay, Hubie Brown. So then to me, a crucial statistic is point differential. If you average 100 points and give up 100 points, then you'll win half your games. If your point differential is three, you score 103 and you give up 100, you have a very good chance of winning 50 games. You wanna win 55 games, (laughs) then score 105 and give up 100. So by the end of the season, our point differential was seven, 109 to 102, that's astronomical, that's the stuff of champions. And in the last 25 games, when we won 22, we averaged 108 points and allowed 92, which is off the charts. Um, so that's just a very modern take, right? I mean, I think people still use point differential as an indicator of, you know, the, how good your team is.
1: I don't understand the math though. I didn't read that part of the book, and I don't understand how the math works. But uh, I'll trust that he's right. Well, he's just around, so. saying
0: if you—he's just saying if if you average one hundred and three points a game, mm-hmm. and you prevent a hundred points a game, he, it's just—it's just offensive rating minus defensive rating to get net rating, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But he's just saying it in a more old-fashioned way, basically. Okay, sure. It's just not, I think it's just not in the same analytical language. That's how I read it, anyways. Um, let's see. And then, it just talks about how he was really, um, really into. So as the season went on, he talked more X's and O's, more and more about things like number of possessions, fast break conversions, defensive stops and point differential. None of us had ever run into a coach like Hubie before. He knew all these numbers off the top of his head. Most of us thought he was just a basketball genius. Um, And then it talks about how he could really cuss, and he was, like, cussing so bad at one of the games, his wife had to call the broadcast and tell him to turn their mic off because she could hear him cussing through the the mike (laughs)
1: that's crazy from what i i don't know him obviously but from his personality on tv as an older gentleman it doesn't seem like he'd be cussing ever
0: (laughs) apparently he was quite prolific yeah (laughs) um and then it talks about i wish i would have like found the place so it talks about this guy marvin who was a fantastic player but who was just extremely disruptive and like wouldn't show up on time and he was just a total character though so it's like I once had Marvin on a post game show and I asked him about the 13 phones there was like a rumor that he had 13 phones in his house and he said no man I ain't got no 13 phones let's see I got one in the living room one in the kitchen one in the bathroom two in the bedroom he named about seven different places that he had phones and by then we were laughing so hard we had to stop so he just like this very, a lot of people in St. Louis resented Marvin. He had this super fly image the wide brimmed hats, the long floor length mink coats, the platform shoes, the big cars, and of course, the 13 telephones. He became the trademark of the team, and the town did not relate very well to that sort of Negro, to use Marvin's phrase. Um, and look at what Marvin did for us as a rookie, he averaged 24 points and 15.6 rebounds. He shot 50%. And he did it with the worst shot selection I had ever seen a pro player have. He would get the ball, turn around, and shoot it. He didn't care where he was on the court. On the court, he would do everything but pass. I never saw any passing skills from him. I don't know if he could pass or if he just wasn't interested in passing, but he didn't pass. Um, Off the court, I've never seen a player who was so totally disruptive. Anything a player could do that was disruptive and negative to his teammates Or in terms of his responsibility to the team, Marvin would do it. I told our trainer that if Marvin had one of those rare days where every light was green and everything happened just right, and in spite of himself, he got to the gym on time for practice, he'd wait outside for a few minutes just to make sure he was late. So he was just uh, a character Um, and then Bob, Costa, Bob Costas has like a whole section about Bob Costas as well. Um, and he ran into Marvin when they were there playing the Kansas City Kings. And Marvin came in and saw me and said, bro, 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 how are you? I said I was fine and I asked him for an interview. And Marvin like couldn't get it together enough to come down from his room and like wanted, wanted uh Bob Costas to come with him to meet some people and then this was like really weird like it seemed like they were insinuating that Marvin was on drugs basically and was super out of it but then he'd come out and like shoot the lights out He kind of not to be like, like some of the description reminded me a little bit of like the bad rap that DeMarcus got um, and just that he's like a disruptive player and but he was also really really good and then it just sort of talks about, like, a lot of the second-chance guys. You know, there was, like, a time when a lot of the guys got into drugs. David Thompson, who did go to the NBA, but pretty much blew his whole NBA career. And they interviewed him. And he said, I had a chance to be the greatest basketball player ever, and I blew it because of drugs. It's that simple. It started at the end of my rookie season. After the exhibition games, the regular season and the playoffs, we played almost 100 games. One day I was very tired and I started telling my teammate about it. He said, Hey, I've got something that will help you. And he just like basically destroyed his career on cocaine. Um, and then it just talks about the ending days of like, they had built this league up and they'd lost like $50 million. They were in like active lawsuits. Like they had something like 50 active lawsuits going with the NBA. Um, There's the, and yet they had like some of the most exciting basketball players in the world. Um, I thought this one was good. I worked at the New York post and the post had a strong basketball tradition. We were the first paper ever to go on the road with the NBA team. Despite all that, the people at the paper just weren't open to the ABA. I would write stories about Julius, George Gervin, Moses Malone, and those guys. And I was held up to suspicion in the newsroom How could any of those guys be any good? They're in the ABA. The attitude was that the Nets could never beat anyone because they weren't in the same league as the Knicks. Um, And so, and talks about Julius Serving again, who was just like at his peak at that point. But nobody ever saw him. Um. So anyone who was ever commissioner had to deal with an incredible amount of legal fees. We were suing the NBA for being a monopoly, breaking antitrust laws, anything else we could think of. When I took over in 1973, we had so many lawsuits going that our legal fees were over $1 million annually. we were suing the NBA. The NBA was suing us. We were suing players. Players were suing us. It would never end. Nothing ever came of 90% of those lawsuits other than the lawyers got rich um and then it just talks about like the the final deal was that basically everything in the ABA was on the ropes there was no money left there were like four viable teams well there were six teams left but four of them the NBA really only wanted four of them and they wanted to pick the parts out of the other ones like they wanted to to um basically like hold a draft for the rest of the players that were left. And like, there was an owner who really wanted artist Gilmore. So they basically only accepted, uh, San Antonio, Denver, Indianapolis, and one other team, which I'm not remembering right now. Um, and the, they had a draft for the rest of the players and not all of them got drafted, but a lot of them did go into the NBA that way. um, and so it's ironic how time changes everything. In 1976, guys were complaining about paying $3.2 million to get into the league. Now those same franchises are worth $50 million, $75 million maybe more. And this is in the 80s, so they're all worth billions now. Well, some people thought the ABA was fleeced by the merger. It turned out to be one of the great business bargains of all time. So then the years after the ABA, so the NBA never acknowledged that it was a merger. They said it was an expansion and they made the ABA owners buy into the NBA for 3.2 million instead of like an expansion team was supposed to give 4.5 billion, but they, I mean, 4.5 million, but they let the ABA owners in for 3.2 million. Um, so then in the, of the of the so then the next year of the league's top ten scores four were former ABA, um, Billy Knight David Thompson Dan Issel, and George Gurbin um, Don Buse led the league in steals and assists um, let's see former Spirit Moses Malone was third in rebounding former Colonel Artist Gilmore was fourth. Gilmore and former Colonel Caldwell Jones were among the top five in block shots. Basically the players were dominated the NBA. And then I just um, added like a ton of, you know, just um, like websites and there's like the logos and there's this little like fanzine down here that somebody made of the, the, San Antonio All Star Game. And that's about it. Th- that was the book.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, you did a great job covering it for what I read, and I'm sure you got the rest of it d- d- done pretty well as well.
0: Well, I think the ending, I was a little rushed reading the ending too. I, I did, I mean, I did end it. There's a, there's a lot of really great stuff in the end about Julius Irving who they called, like, Mr. ABA. He was really, I mean, really the ending, like, um, where they went and were trying to, like, get the NBA to allow them in, it was really because they wanted Julia Serving in the NBA. Like, they realized that they needed to have eyes on him, you know. Um, But there was a lot of other fantastic um, players that, you know, went into the NBA too. I'm sorry that I left out. There's also a story about, um, about two guards who like get in just randomly, like they just love basketball and they show up as walk-ons to one of the teams and they kept thinking they were going to get cut so and they, they kept early. making every cut <laughs> and they ended up like having like really long basketball careers. In, and they would leave,
1: um, sorry to interrupt, but they would leave like <clears throat> as soon as practice. They get there hella early for early for practice if you like show they're hard and try, yeah. and try to because they want to trying to work hard to try to get on. But and then they leave right as practice as soon as practice, they jet out of there because then people would get cut at the end of practice. So they just <laughs> try to avoid like, getting cut by just leaving yeah. practice as soon as possible, which is kind of funny. But uh,
0: and the yeah. one of them, I, I, I want to say it was Willie Wise. Or, or something. I want to say it was Mike Cleave and Willie Wise, but I think those are names are probably wrong. But yeah, they turn into be two of the best players in the ABA for a couple years before translating over to that was just like, kind of warmed my heart, that kind of idea of the underdog making it, you know. Um, yeah, for sure. Or you can't see that really happening in the NBA. Um. Anything else, any other thoughts or
1: um, Not really for me, no, not much. I, I guess I, I'll look at my highlights real quick, but um, I, I don't know if I have much else.
0: yeah, I mean I, I think it was a great read. pretty entertaining. I, mix, I, I was kind of hoping to go back to more of like an analytical bent with our next one, like do uh-huh. thinking basketball or something, which is like hundred and fifty pages. Oh nice um, <laughs> I can't find it to buy it on Kindle though or I can't oh. find it like a it's just the physical version right now
1: really? that guy he's on a he's on podcast he he has a big podcast, a big website yeah. he has YouTube videos. Why is he not on
0: Kindle? Well, it's on Kindle, but it won't let me buy it on Kindle, so I'm not sure I actually sent oh. him a message, so I'll find nice. out
1: nice you know, yeah. I think I actually bought that already on Kindle when I could buy it. I think I already bought that book. Let me
0: make oh, sure. Really? That.
1: I mean, let me open up my, Let go to that part of my Kindle and try to find it, search for it. But, um, <clears throat> I think I got it. I got it a while ago and haven't read it, but I got it a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. It's wow. uh, 181 well, pages, but it's, uh, yeah, about 1%.
0: <laughs> Let's read that one next. Okay. Um, and I'll buy it physical if I have to.
1: Yeah. And, yeah. uh, yeah, I guess. Oh, uh, Kevin's back. Okay, good. Kevin, if you uh want to read that book, feel free. Of course, and we encourage you to do so. Thinking basketball. I don't know if you heard it. If you don't know when you left, but thinking basketball is the name of the book. And uh, Joseph and Ty and S. Jeffrey and Roller Rebounds. If you guys want to do that too, it'd be awesome. We love it. I'm sure, right, Meg?
0: Yeah, I think it's. Uh, I don't know. Daly said it's a little. Uh... Like it's, he referred to it, I think as like a, um. Intellectual? A manifesto. <laughs> a manifesto. <laughs> that sounds interesting. A basketball interesting. manifesto. Yeah. So I think fun. it's a little erudite, but I've also yeah. heard it referred to as like the fan's guide to watching basketball analytically. Okay. Um, okay.
1: So, he is kind of, yeah. I think it is I think it is called Thinking Basketball. His music that he has on there, if you've heard it, is kind of trippy and in an intellectual type way. It's kind of like an intellectual guy that's like he could be writing philosophy books somewhere, but he's instead at a university. Instead, he's watching basketball games, writing about, talking about them, writing about them, making videos about them. But he's kind is of is
2: this uh, a Ben Taylor book? Yeah, yeah, ben yeah, Taylor. yeah, Ben Taylor.
1: Yeah, Ben Taylor. He's kind of yeah. a guy that could have a PhD in philosophy somewhere, but instead he's writing about basketball. <laughs> that's what he's got like in my opinion that's my my view of him but um whatever
0: yeah i don't think i have anything else to say about this book i i like i said i i did track down supposedly i tracked down a copy of foul the biography of um connie hawkins which it's available like you can buy it but it's like 89 dollars or something and i found a copy for a dollar So it might be completely trashed, but I'm interested in that too. If I can maybe make that into a PDF for other people to read or something at some point, but it's not here yet and I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to get. So it might be just like a mass of weird pages that are unreadable or something. Um, But it it definitely perked my interest about Connie Hawkins. This book did uh, because I'd heard before that he, you know, he had a lot of, he just had a very unfair kind of um, experience in the NBA. So that's another one that's on my list.
3: What what
2: is that book you reference about the the Milwaukee Bucks the the GM guy who like was a part of building team? What's oh, the name of that um, book? Maybe that's the do... mid
0: range theory. By Seth Partnow, yeah, and yeah. he actually does. He does a um, he, he does like an almost daily podcast on Colin as well, where he has some really fascinating guests on. Hmm. I've enjoyed it since he's been doing it. Um, he's just been doing it like for the last I don't know three months or something, but he does. He he has great um, guests on from all different like he had caitlin cooper on and they talked about the Pacers. he had someone on and they talked kings he and he he'll have like stat nerds and stuff on and they'll get really nerdy he had an emergency one yesterday about the jaron jackson block controversy reddit block controversy anyways that's a good uh podcast i recommend it and it's on call in so you can like ask questions and stuff too.
1: Kevin, where did your question come from? Where did you why did you ask that question? Did you did you talk to make some other place about that or is that from listening to the podcast, this podcast, or
2: well, I think it was came up in uh Calville Talk a few times. Okay, got it. Okay, so I thought that'd be uh yeah, you know, that be an interesting book to to do for a book club. But I don't know if you already did it already.
0: Yeah, we did actually. Um, uh, yeah it is great though I do recommend it it's almost like it's a trippy book because it's a little disjointed like you can almost like pick it up and then read it like the different chapters like you don't even have to yeah, read them in order
1: look at but
0: yeah. they're really interesting to like understand like the day to day of a basketball team and like how often they get a practice and how they have to function under the salary cap and it has some really interesting utilitarian information in there, in my opinion. Um, Yeah. I found that book really fascinating. It's interesting because I feel like I go back to all the books that we've read and try and make them apply to the ones that we're reading, you know, and they do relate in some ways. Some do, some don't, I guess, but, um, yeah that one's that one's really good sprawl ball that one and then spaced out are all sort of about the three-point revolution spaced
1: out i think is i think it's a he he describes in the acknowledgments that he just pitched it as an x's and o's book and that's what i think it is it's an x's and o's book yeah he breaks down how to how to run the pick and roll in various ways and how to defend the pick and roll for sure in various ways and all sorts of different things that you see in like X's and O's on videos from coaches. He breaks down a lot of that stuff, but in writing, which is fantastic. Cause I don't like watching videos to learn, you know, various X's and O's stuff. I like to read about it. And um, the basketball dictionary, the basketball action dictionary on on the internet, as well as that book are really good for that kind of stuff. Spaced out. That is um, videos are great too. It's just, it's just harder for me to learn for some reason videos, but um, yeah.
0: All right. Well, we, Kevin, did you have any last
2: thoughts on this book? Yeah, yeah. I, I did want to say a few things. Um, At the end of the book, there's a few things I wanted to talk about. Um, The Kentucky Colonel's owner, the stuff he did at the end of the ABA, giving up on that franchise and then buying the Buffalo Braves and then training it to get the Boston Celtics is absolutely insane.
0: Yeah. And,
2: the uh, Spirits of St. Louis. I, I don't. I don't. I didn't read to that part yet. Like I was still on, on that chapter where I stopped. But the deal they made, getting the consistent TV revenue, it was one of the best business deals anyone has ever made. And I don't. Was it mentioned much?
0: I don't remember. I definitely remember the um, the John Y stuff but I don't remember the spirit stuff as much. And maybe it's just because I wasn't perked up to that. The other thing that they talk a lot about that I didn't really go over either was that um, I think it was, I can't remember which two teams now, but there were two teams that were going to go into the NBA and basically like, fuck you to the rest of the ABA teams. They were just going to go into the NBA and like be gone from the ABA and that like cast a major pall over the last year of the ABA where everyone was kind of upset about that. And like mad, even though that was, had been the goal, these two teams weren't doing it as like, you know, together with everyone else. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of the beginning of the end of the whole when... thing.
2: Cause... Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. No, 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 no. I'll finish your thought. I, I don't even know what it was. <laughs> oh.
0: Just I, I was,
2: I was going to say, um, because of reading about this, like listening to it. I, I, I was reading a little bit about the AFL and their merger. And, and it's pretty crazy that, that basically the NFL and AFL were, were so worried about, um, uh, what's the Raiders owner, uh, the Raiders, uh, uh Davis, Davis, that, yeah, Al Davis, that, that they did the merger behind the back and, and all went in and did the merger. I thought that was insane. Like, but obviously, ABA was a very different situation. Um, I thought this book was excellent. I really appreciated how the style of writing in this book is all like folklore, folktale kind of stuff. Like, it's, it's stuff of legends. Stuff, I mean, no one really knows about the stuff. And this is basically the primary source of of most of the resources online, the, even that the ABA site, references this book all the time. But, like, even the sources here are not 100%. So, like, it, yeah. it's crazy how such an important part of basketball history was lost to time because there just wasn't any eyeballs on it. Like, the, the, the draw was horrible. But I, I'm really glad this book exists because without it, you know we wouldn't know half the stuff of the aba it, it would have just been lost to time
0: well i think it's so interesting that he says like that everyone like the access that he got and the interviews that he got you know and the fact that like julia serving talked to him and you know i mean all of like the sort of big names that he mentions he ha- he mm-hmm. actually sat down with them and talked to them and then some of like the deeper cut guys too but just the fact that everybody still remembers it as like I think what I was going to say before too is like even at the very end when it seemed like when you know half the teams are like folding or like literally like you know we're having to borrow like athletic tape from the next team they were going to or like like there was a point where like one of the teams had to have the the team they were playing pay for their hotel (laughs) because they were so (laughs) out of money like and it's yeah. like everybody knew it was the end but they still felt like they were like fighting the good fight you know and they mm-hmm. were the underdogs and um yeah yeah it's definitely it is interesting i like that you pointed out that the guys who are more of like the cutthroat business people really did end up profiting sadly even though they were sort of like the treacherous vill- villains of the story mm-hmm. you know but yeah they ended up coming out on top which is kind
2: of messed up. I, I yeah. really liked the learning in this book about just some of the weird, the weird stuff, like the, the San Diego conquistadors with the was the, the, the coach for one year that yeah. like, just tried the draw over it. Yeah. Well, and, and it's <laughs> stuff like that. It's like only in the ABA would, would, would anyone even consider it and, and all the teams, that did eventually make it into the NBA, were all really, really well-run organizations, even from the start. Um, yeah. But, I mean, San Antonio, um, when they moved, they became really good. The Pacers were really good. The the Nets, once they got their new ownership, m- moved to the Nassau Coliseum and got, obviously, they had Julius Serving. And then the Denver Rockets, the Denver Nuggets, had had money bankrolled. So, they were all just really well-run. And they got the the coaching from from Carolina and always just really well run. And it, one, one, one part that stuck out to me was the Pacers chapter where they're talking about they wanted to be the Boston Celtics of the ABA. Yeah. Like, and it's crazy how they've never actually won a championship in the NBA since. I
0: know. But, but they've
2: I always know, been incredibly well run. So, so it makes me admire the ABA teams that made it through because they're all just excellent organizations.
0: I love the idea that there are still, like, I mean, I consider myself old, but, you know, I mean, this is probably a generation before me of people who would have remembered going to these games and, like, seeing the games, but I love, that was a lot of what I loved about that Spurs chapter is where they actually interviewed like a fan who was a kid at the time, Mm -hmm. who, like, you know, snuck his friend in the back door. (laughs) Yeah, like, I mean, because that really, it really does feel like you're doing something dangerous and new and the games were, you know, the guys were like getting in fights on the court and just, it was like the pumped up version of basketball, you know, and uh yeah, yeah great stuff. It's so interesting how much it really does relate to like the play style that is on yeah. the court now. That's the part that's really... The through line for me. And that's like why, how I found out about this book actually is from reading the other books about the three point revolution and when they started using it, you know. But like mm-hmm. I said, like even until the 2010s, the leading three point uh, uh, shooter was from the ABA. So, like, yeah. even until the 2010s, they still were not using that three point shot like the ABA used to. So it's, mm-hmm. it took, you know, 30, 40 years for it to to even, you know, get to a level where it was in the ABA. It was pretty interesting stuff. All right. Well, we've been on here for quite a while. Um, and I, so I think, are we cool with our next book being Thinking Basketball? I'm down. Okay. Yeah, that'd
1: awesome. be great. Okay.
0: Should we? Um, cool. Thank you. I'll, be right
1: now, I'll ask you later. Cut this out part. This part out.
0: Oh, oh, go for it.
1: Uh, well, okay. Do you want to um tag Taylor in uh in Twitter a little a few times maybe uh over the course of a month but not really like
0: yeah, just so maybe he can retweet yeah. it maybe Let and
1: me... maybe his followers can come check it out maybe you know,
0: yeah, because other yeah. people have retweeted me...
1: it, the authors, so
0: yeah, yeah, I'll do that. I couldn't find uh, I didn't look for Terry Pluto I kind of forgot that part uh, but Ben Taylor's definitely online so yeah for sure that would be fun to do that um, okay cool I'm going to shut her down and uh, help my kids get ready for school tomorrow uh, but thanks thanks everybody for showing up and and doing this
1: yeah thanks big. appreciate it okay